Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which you demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like cabbage barnacles and cuddles. I think we could also do something on reunions, Sam, because I've just been to my old college and met up with people that I was at university with 30 years ago. Or you could go back and listen to our podcast on puppies and dogs, because if you go back there, you will you will note that I very emphatically said that I would never uh, have a puppy in the house. And lo and behold several months later or a year or so later my 10 year old has managed to persuade me to get a puppy it started with a goldfish and then progressed to a hamster and I said we can't have a smelly hamster in the house uh, and we can't have a goldfish we need a proper we need a proper pet if we're going to go go pet wise we go the whole hog and have a dog and I hadn't realized what I'd said my tongue sort of got carried away with me and we have a puppy arriving in two weeks yeah or, or the dogs can smell quite bad yes that's the, other, that. that's the other thing <laughs> but everyone is everyone is worrying me about about dogs about a puppy in particular including your good self uh, absolutely i did end my advice against getting a dog with the reminder that it will bring you great joy to your life if they, I think it will. I think it will. However, as always, we are digressing, digressing monstrously, uh, because what we'll be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of buckets is in fact all about the history of seaside holidays, sandcastles, childhood pastimes and sand deals. It's also all about the Great Fire of London in 1666 fire a 17th century fire bucket it's about roman and medieval sigillars if you don't know what they are listen to the podcast religious ceremonies as well as alum collecting urine and the history of leather which of course is all about gloves 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 you'll be glad to know those of you who are long-term listeners to the podcast that this summer i finished with my brilliant colleague in australia sue broomhall the an entire manuscript of the book on gloves i've printed it all out written all over it and it will be in well it will be to the publisher by christmas that's what i'm mm, claiming very good yes so or mm. 
who knew that the history of fame, the history of fame, is in fact all about a new film on Netflix called I Used to Be Famous. It's all about the history of celebrity, changed fortunes of the famous, from ancient Rome all the way through to Elvis, the rise of boy bands, and so much more. And you know what, Sam? So one of our listeners, our long-term listeners from the US, uh, a man called Irving Jaffa, if I've pronounced your name correctly, Irvin. Uh, If I haven't, uh, profuse apologies. But we had a lovely email uh, from Irvin, um, a very, very touching email, who said that he saw the movie uh, a couple of weeks ago and really really enjoyed it and he this shows that people in fact do listen to what we witter on about (laughs) about you know when we ask questions people think about it and do you remember i said that i didn't know whether vince um actually was going to go on tour with his old band member or was going to go back and teach the class and and Irvin um, considered that this this issue, he said, concerning the issue of what vocation Vince took, it was obvious to me that he chose to teach the drumming therapy group. Towards the end of the movie, his old boy band manager told him that second chances don't come around too often. On the surface, the phrase referring to the touring opportunity, but the deeper meaning to Vince was the missed opportunity with his brother. And now the drumming group has the second opportunity. Isn't that lovely? Very good, and thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. Um, You're all probably wondering who this fellow presenter of mine is. Let me just say, of my fellow presenter, no pawn is he. A knight? Nay. A castle? I think not. A bishop? Well, he'd look excellent in a bishop's mitre, that's for sure. Is he a queen? Well, not this one, I don't think. Uh, He's nothing less than the king of history, the man who rules over the checkerboard of the past, moving slowly but deliberately through the corridors of research, coordinating his army of thoughts as they go about their thinky business in the realm of the present. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, hello. hello. Uh, a wonderful um, introduction. I've gone very low low rent uh, on this one. Um, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a games-related historian, this is very short and perfunctory and to the, to the point, he'd only be the grandmaster of the historical world. It's the famous adventurer, historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. I talked earlier on about, my, about the Gordy that I went to at my old Oxford College, and I bumped into, or I, hadn't, I didn't bump into, but I'd arranged to go there with a very good friend of mine um, from years ago who I hadn't seen for a long time called Chris, Chris Parkins. Hello, Chris. Chris has actually been, had actually been painting his kitchen and had listened to 10 episodes back to back. And then, <laughs> and then throughout the, throughout, throughout our, our evening together was sort of, was, was talking to me about things that he'd heard. And I was just, I was just amazed. But one of the things I, I said to him, I said, Chris, be really honest with me. Having listened to it, you know, what, what are there any, is there any cr- practical points? He said, well, you know, having listened to 10 back to back, the introductions get a bit kind of, they, 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 when you hear all of them together, it's quite a lot. So I wondered whether, <laughs> you know, whether, so, uh, you know, in, in honour of Chris, I kept the introduction short there, but I don't think our introduction has been short at all. I think we've been talking for about 10 minutes already, and we haven't actually <coughs> got to the meat of what we're talking about today, which is... Which is- Board games. We're doing the history of board games, which I'm very excited about because I play a lot of board games and I thoroughly enjoy them and always have done. Um, this was a suggestion from a listener. It and, was. Um, it very, was. Uh, who was that? 
It was a woman called Momo, um, who I was ah. in email uh, contact with her her partner, her husband, um, who'd bought several books, uh, signed books for her. Um, and and I said, oh, this is great. You've bought all these books for her. Um, she said she's a big fan. And I said, brilliant. I said, get her to make some suggestions. And she came up with all sorts of good ideas. Board games is the first one that we're going to do. Right. Well, um, it, it's, it's interesting because I've been thinking in quite a gamey way anyway. Um, well, I usually do. Uh, but uh, particularly so because I've just read a brilliant book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. And I would urge you all to buy it. Um, it's a book about computer games. So it, it's not particularly board gamey, but there is an interesting board game link. So in this book, um, this this young woman who's at uh, um, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology... Um, studying computer science uh, makes a game for her gaming class and it's a very clever game and you're basically you're working in a factory and you get points for completing each level now at the end of each level what you can do is you can choose to go on to the next level and thereby get closer to completing the game or you can spend some of the points that you've got that you need to get to the next level on finding out a bit more about what you're doing in the factory so you've got an option. Basically, one, well, you can find out everything that you're doing and you can progress slowly or you can progress quickly and you can essentially win the game. Um, the, the twist, of course, I don't know if anyone can identify the links between a factory and uh, a kind of a complicit game and history, is that the more you spend your points, the more you find out that in the game you are actually working in a factory in Nazi Germany and you're creating gas which is going to be used in the Holocaust. Incredibly clever game. So, um, but you, you, you discover that, that the winners are in fact the losers and you only win by not playing anymore. Um, it's, it's an interesting game because uh, in this respect, it was, um, it's based on a, on a board game, on actually quite a famous board game, which was designed in 2009 by Brenda Romero. Um, and this board game is called Train, and uh, it has a a, uh, a similar premise to um, Solution, which is the, um, the 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 fantasy game which I've just been discussing, which isn't a novel; it's not a real game. But this one really is real. You can go and buy a Train, um, and it's a game that was d- designed to teach um, how people become and remain complicit and the the simple idea of the game is that you are required um to load people represented by just sort of plain yellow pegs uh onto trains and to move them to different railway stations and what you're trying to do is you're trying to beat the other person or the other people you're playing with and get your players to that destination faster than the others and only once the final destination is revealed is it revealed to be uh, Auschwitz concentration camp um, but part of the game is quite interesting is that the the, the the rules state that the game is over when it ends uh, and meaning that you can you can stop the game once you've reached Auschwitz or you can stop the game whenever you want and liberate all of the prisoners on your train um, so anyway, it's a really uh, interesting way of thinking about games uh, right at the beginning there to make the point, which I'm going to come back to, is that games are not necessarily all fun in games. There's often messages there and that a lot of them um, are really tied up with history in, in, in surprising ways. 
gosh, those are slightly disturbing games. Yeah, they're yeah. great. Yeah, well, I'm slightly weirded out by the by the idea of playing the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, well, there's um, there are other games. Um, it's actually, I mean, using games to teach uh, kids in particular. There are other ones, um, very mm. useful ones for helping people understand the Atlantic slave trade. Mm. And and you're not just dealing mm. with non-specific commodities; you're dealing with movements of people. Yeah. And uh, and gaming as a, as a means of 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 education is incredibly powerful. Yeah, so it's the sort of sinister side of of, of the games and learning the consequences from mm. particular actions. Yeah, that, and also that's learning through through learning yes. through play yeah, is yeah, that yeah. is that the 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 message is is in many respects more profound because you're 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 doing it in a in an interactive setting often, which is associated with fun and you know the passing of time. But actually, it's it's a way of really cementing um, significant yes. points in. Yeah. Well, I was thinking back over our past podcasts, and we've treated games in several of our episodes. Um, if you think back to one of our episodes on Second World War and escapes, we looked at the kinds of escape devices that were popped into board games that were sent over to POW camps. We also talked about games in relation to the Vikings. We've done a whole episode on cards, and I think we did um, Snakes and Ladders, the board game Snakes and Ladders, in our episode on, I think it was Ladders, or it could have been on Snakes, I can't remember which. <laughs> I can't remember which. I think, yeah. I think, it, I was, think it was Ladders. I think it was Ladders. Um, and, and Which got me thinking about how you start thinking about board games, which I think is really interesting. And you've got the development of games over time, over the ages, connected to the history of leisure and past pastime, the history of boredom, adventure. You've got different kinds of games, so for strategy, skill, chance, fun, entertainment, tournaments, so the practical aspect of of games is really fun. I mean, you're talking there about the educative role of games. You've got child, children's versus adult games and the sort of interchange there. You've got games that have a regional or national element, so games that are played all over the world and those that are native to particular countries. As always, you've got the material culture of board games, so the evidence of games that survive and what we can tell about those. So, you know, go and have a look at the website of the Museum of Childhood in London. And we've spoken about this museum quite a lot. And it has an amazing collection of board games which allow you to reconstruct the culture of play of children in the 19th and 20th century. And it's really striking how far back in history board games go. You know, we think of modern-day games like Scrabble, Monopoly, Dungeons and Dragons, but, you know, the first board games can be traced back to ancient Egypt, you know, well over 5,000 years ago um, and have evolved in cultures and societies ever since. And one of the things that I was really interested in was the archaeological remains of games. So thinking about portable games, you know, games that have been dug up by archaeologists and what they tell you about where people were playing games, either on board ship, in, in prison, on the battlefield, what it tells us about, the, say, the nature of life in the trenches or in a Roman fort or on board a 17th century Swedish ship like the Vasa. The Vasa is one of my favourite museums in Stockholm. We've spoken about it in the past. It is based around a a, a sort of... Um, of Swedish ship, uh, the Vasa, uh, that sank on its maiden voyage in 1628. It was brought up in the 50s and 60s and is in this purpose-built museum on Museum Island in, in Stockholm. And one of the most exquisite 
uh, artifacts that they have is a little wooden travelling set of 400-year-old Swedish tables, which is a variant of backgammon. And if you go to the Vasa website and put in, you go into Google or any other search engine and put in Swedish tables, the Vasa Museum, what you will get is a wonderful picture of this. And imagine like a, a sort of an, an old-fashioned backgammon board um, in wood, covered in what looks like cloth, um, with little wooden uh, triangles, and then a series of counters. Uh, and it also has the it has the the rules uh, of this attached to it, and it, it looks like it's played on a standard backgammon board. It's got a couple of dice. It's got fifteen white checkers, fifteen black checkers. The board has twenty four triangular fields uh, in points uh, divided along a border, and it's a game of skill uh, and also charms because you've got a, a dice there where you. Um, roll the dice and then move and it's the first one to it's the first one to finish i'm sure it's much more involved than that but but it's the idea of games and pastimes on board on board ship uh making life pass by i also chanced upon um some other board games um counters dice shakers found uh, near hadrian's wall um by english heritage and apparently english heritage have over 689 gaming counters 11 fragmentary gaming boards in its collection from the forts and towns all the way along Hadrian's Wall. So you have this idea of, you know, ancient Roman Britain um, and the Romans whiling away their time playing these games. So there we are, Sam. There's portable games and uh, archaeology and the material culture of gaming. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How's about that? Hmm. Yeah. Really, really good, and um, so many different sources for people to go and discover, and ways, different ways to think about games for history. Um, as usual with these things, um, sort of blundering around in the past, uh, I looked at my own history for some inspiration and to think about, you know, my relationship with games. I used to play chess with my grandfather. I remember that very vividly. Took it very seriously. He wasn't around for very long, um, but he taught me to play, and I have a, a very clear memories of playing with someone who was a very unplayful person but but was prepared to do it in a structure he was in the army right so so a very kind of structured rigid person but given the defined rules of chess he was also interested in the kind of the, the military strategy and tactics of chess i suspect um that he could spend a little bit of time with his grandson and, and no one would laugh at him um, but he would still consider it as playing and that made me think about you know what what is 
play? What uh, does it have to be playful? And and the reasons why we play. Um, you mentioned it a bit there, James, saying that the history of board games go right back to ancient Egypt. And I've come across some interesting things there with um, ancient images of, uh, of tombs of, of, of people playing games with the gods. It's to hmm. that kind of level that you need to think about it. And it makes you realise that their understanding of it is is very much mixed mixed up with their understanding of the afterlife, um, gaining access to different worlds, essentially. It's not as simple as we suspect. Um, I also think back to my time at university where I invented a board game. I still have it on my wall. Um, what was your board game? It's called Penny Attack. It's a great game. It's a cross between Shove Hapney and Snooker. Um, and we played it a pub in uh, in Exeter where it was a pub with inlaid game boards there. So there were chess boards and backgammon boards already on the tables you were sitting at. And I used to sit opposite my friend Dan. And we played it on a backgammon board but pushed through 90 degrees. And we developed our own game based on that. And then from that we actually made our own boards which uh, removed the unnecessary bits of the backgammon board and um, kept the other bits. Um, so I, that's uh, I'm very fond of that, and actually I taught my children how to play it recently, uh, and that was good fun. Um, but also, my wife and I we learned to play backgammon on our honeymoon. We were in Turkey, and a young Turkish chap taught us to play. And um, I then went when I was in Istanbul many years later. Went to the big markets there and bought a beautiful backgammon board, which we still have, and I still play uh, several times a week. Um, and so, primarily, I wanted to focus on those three different things, uh, backgammon, because I find backgammon absolutely fascinating and I've been lucky enough to see people playing it in the streets. I love the idea of um, board games as a spectator sport and I bet that has its own history. I haven't had the chance to look into it, but I've certainly witnessed um, in and around markets in um, in Turkey and further east as well, around Uzbekistan, um, and Tajikistan as well. You get you get people playing games with crowds, um, and people just standing around watching it. Something that's completely alien to us here in the UK. I mean, if if if, if people are doing something as a competition, then you're probably going to buy tickets for it and you can watch it. Um, and there's lots of of internet streamed gaming now, but you don't get the um, the 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 kind of the social aspect of it, where you've got everyone standing around. Uh, mulling over what the next move uh, should be, what the next move actually was. They're all um, sitting there drinking tea and smoking, and it's a, a very interesting um, social event. Um, and I just wanted to make one point, actually, James, before I pass over to you, that that this idea of games and socialisation is actually very uh, in, in intricately linked, um, particularly for Europe, and it all kind of happens around the 16th century. Um, it's kind of helpful to think about Shakespeare's time here, think about places like the Globe. Um, and what's going on is there's a there's a there's a very close relationship here um, where you have a number of playhouses which are built right next to kind of pre-existing gaming establishments. So the gaming and the gambling is already there. And what they're trying to do is to create an industry of entertainment by building theatres that taps into and competes with 
pre-existing forms of entertainment, one of which is gaming, it's gambling, it's playing of board games. This happens at the late 16th century, the early 17th century. Um, and one really interesting way that this becomes clear is... Is, is the sense of theatre itself being a bit of a gamble. And they're trying to attract a pre-existing gambling crowd. Um, so they're not as different as they first appear, these ideas of gaming and going to the theatre. And it's most clear, if you think about it, in terms of paying for the theatre. So what the, the thing that changed in the last quarter of the 16th century is that people paid before they went to see the play. And that made it itself a bit of a gamble. You weren't sure what you were going to get. Um, and before then, that was you, you'd, you'd, you'd offer what money, whatever you saw fit at the end of a performance. But it all changed at the end of the 16th century, uh, making this whole business um, of going to the theatre a bit of a gamble. Um, and it was worth thinking about that history of theatre and realising how closely linked it is with the history of gaming. Mm. Gosh, you've got me thinking about all sorts of... You know, sociable, sociable gaming and gambling, and and I, I I can conjure this up in all sorts of films that I've seen. Um, you know, pictures of um, of sort of uh, you know men in particular areas, um, often in often in America. So I'm thinking about the sort of working class sort of areas in in America with people playing sort of dice games and gambling games and you know often sort of gangster movies um i i think i'm i'm interested in whether some of the environments that you've seen it in whether it is an all male preserve or whether it whether there are women there as well it seems to me that often it's a very sort of male world of gambling and gaming like that mm. yeah you know i mean too that i hadn't thought about it but i would completely agree with you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So one of the things I was going to talk about, picking up on, picking up actually on where I left off with the archaeology of games, but also connecting to your introduction to me, is looking at looking at chess. Because I was I was compared to all these different um, different characters, and there's a really important archaeological record of chess pieces uh, from across the world. So we have very very early chess pieces and chess collections that survive you know all over the place and the thing with chess is that it develops um in local conditions so it it often reflects the societies in which it has developed so if you look at the kinds of pieces they are different in different parts of the world so they may be very different in a sort of in an islamic sort of part of the world different in sort of the christian uh west and of course one of the most famous uh examples of chess pieces is the lewis chessman uh, which famously survive in the British Museum in London. And they are written about in that sumptuous volume, uh, The World in a Hundred Objects, uh, written by Neil McGregor, which we've talked about before. Uh, we are coming up to Christmas, uh, as, as, as always. I've already done half my Christmas shopping, uh, and we're at the end of September. I'm... Uh, stickler for getting things in early but uh, i can recommend this as a fantastic stocking filler however chapter 61 deals with these fantastic 
Lewis Chessman, uh, which are made out of walrus uh, ivory and whale's teeth and probably made in Norway and found in the Isle of Lewis uh, in Scotland, uh, roughly dating to AD 1150-1200. And what's really fascinating about chess, as I've already said, and these surviving pieces is that these pieces in particular allow you to visualise what you'd imagine European society was like in around the year 1200. Um, and what we've got it surviving is around 78 mixed pieces that were found on the Hebridean island of Lewis in the year 1831. Uh, now, 67 of these pieces are held in the British Museum and about 11 of them are in the National Museum of Scotland. And as I said before, I think chess is a really has a really interesting and long history um, and you can trace it back, you know, thousands of years. Um, and it appears to have been invented in India uh, around the year 500 and as I was saying before I think as it sort of passes from one culture into another so as it passes from the Middle East into Christian Europe so what you see the nature of the chess pieces changing to reflect the kind of society that they were being that the game was being played in so if you think about uh, Indian chess sets chess sets that come from India they have pieces that are shaped like war elephants. You know, they are some of the sort of main uh, sort of fighting, uh, attacking pieces. Whereas if you contrast them to the European pieces, they are often depicted very much as, as humans rather than animals or as as, as abstract forms. And the, the Lewis chessmen uh, seem to have a whole series of characters that reflect the structures of medieval power in medieval Europe and, and particularly that sort of um, northern European world of Scandinavia and the Baltic and, and Iceland into Ireland and what's striking about them is that they are they're pretty big you know these are about eight centimeters or about three inches high that's some hefty uh, chess piece it's much bigger than the kind of pieces that we'd be used to playing with today and the kind of thing that you could sort of you could hold in your in in your hand you know rather than just using fingers to move them about and as i said they're made out of walrus tusks some are made out of of whale's teeth and if you if you go through the different categories of chess pieces that we've got you can actually see that they are representative of that sort of medieval uh, society. So if we'd start with the pawns, these are the sort of, you know, the sort of foot soldier um, people. These uh, represent um, the only pieces that aren't that aren't human. They are basically ivory slabs. So they're little, look a little bit like uh, gravestones standing upright. And these are meant to represent the the peasants that have been. You know, conscripted into the battlefield. If you have a look, so these are your sort of frontline troops. If you have a look beyond that, the sort of rear pieces, these tend to have much more personality and are depicted in a much more sort of visual way. Um, you've got you've got what look like knights on horseback, sort of elite the elite guards. You've got kings, you've got queens, um, and I think the ultimate the ultimate figure 
is of course the king because the aim of the game is that you have to as you all know who play chess you have to capture the king and then all the checkmate and all the fighting uh is over after that you've then got the knight that moves you know very sort of fast around on 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 horseback um very adaptable figure uh and what's what's interesting here is the is the role of the of the knights that have their beginnings in in india you've also got fighters called berserkers these are the um these are the sort of shock troops of the chess game uh in the scandinavian world um where we have castles you've got these sort of shock shock troops and these you know those of you who know your your icelandic uh, history uh, will know that berserker is a is a word for a soldier wearing a shirt made from bearskin, and the word berserk today is made sort of synonymous with with sort of destructive, violent, sort of wild warriors. Um, and so the these figures take you to the sort of very terrifying uh, battlefield of, of of the Norsemen or or the Vikings. Um, so we've got a whole range of we've got a whole range of figures. Um, there's a really interesting quote from Miri Rubin, uh, who's a medieval uh, history professor, um, who talks about the where she thinks these these pieces came from um, that they've come from travelled across the sea from Trondheim to Dublin uh, and I quote I believe that they came from Norway and probably came from somewhere around Trondheim. They look so much like um, that's been produced there but if we think of Great Britain not as much connected to the central and southern European sphere as it is now but instead of the North Sea as a sort of connector of regions there is that whole North Sea region that's where the Vikings came from and that's where the predecessors of Normans who ultimately conquered England came from so if we think of that sort of commonwealth a northern commonwealth that became rich because it had these amazing raw materials of wood and amber and fur and metals then we can imagine better how something produced in Norway could end up on the west coast of Scotland and so these chessmen were discovered in 1831 in Ugg Bay on Lewis uh, in a small uh, stone chamber and it's thought that they were basically hidden there for safety to be picked up uh, later on so there we are Sam um, um, the uh, Lewis chess people um, where are you going next with the history of board games Oh, very briefly, I just wanted to talk about the symbolism of backgammon because I've loved oh. my backgammon, as I said, and I found out a little bit about it, at least for some historic descriptions of it. So um, James mentioned it before, but can you, if you can't envisage a backgammon board, then um, it, you've got um, a, a, a board divided into two with a kind of bridge across the middle and then a series of points upon which you move around um, players are known as checkers or you know or men um they're black and they're white here we are from 1889 um and this is um from a, a, a thing called chinese games with dice and in this book they actually describe the japanese game of suguroku which is a variety of backgammon or tables uh, in this game, the board is divided into 12 parts by as many longitudinal lines broken in the midst by an open space. The moves are made according to throws with dice. The 12 compartments are said to symbolise the 12 months and the black and white stones employed as the men to represent day and night. 
uh, on the authority of Chinese authors, the game in China is said to be as old as the third century. So I thought that was interesting. And it's also supported by, um, this is a 13th century Arabic biographer, um, Ibn uh, Chelikan. Actually, he wrote a really interesting book because of the amount he quotes from other lost sources. And he says that the game, the inventor of the game, arranged it according to the example of the world to which he compared it. For he divided the board into 12 houses according to the number of months in the year. And the men are 30 pieces according to the number of days in the month. The dice correspond to the revolving spheres and their throws to the motions and circulation of the latter. The points upon them answer to the number of the planets, since their positions always constitute the number seven, the one being opposite the six, the two, the five, the three opposite the four. And so he establishes the casts which one obtains in playing after the example of divine predetermination and decree, which are sometimes in his favour, sometimes against him. He himself moves his men according to the throw, so that if he has a quick intelligence, he's able so to arrange matters as to get the victory and overcome his adversary under the conditions which the dice have determined. Which I thought was a wonderful explanation. And it does um, uh, repeat this idea about the, the board being divided into 12 according to the number of the months and the men 30 according to the days in the month, which I thought was interesting. And it helped at least explain some of the thinking behind backgammon. That was tremendous, Sam. Tremendous. I think we've taken people on quite a journey through the history of board games. What's your favourite board game? Other than backgammon. Uh, ba- other than backgammon. Uh, other than backgammon. Um, well, not, Monop- not Monopoly. Um, I mean, no. this, this, well, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, actually. Um, there, there is. If you think about, think about Monopoly and the lessons of Monopoly, it teaches you to knock everything down and build hotels and make as much money as you want, which isn't very good. The subliminal messaging I like. Um, I'm, I'm quite into watching Stranger Things at the moment on Netflix, and that's Ooh. all about um, dun- Dungeons and Dragons. And yes. um, what was going on in the 1980s in America with Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is fascinating, the satanic panic. Um, well, you know, a huge cultural problem, and they believed that kids were were um, summoning summoning um, devils and 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 demons from the underworld. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really reminiscent of QAnon, actually. Yes, I'm 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 enjoying a board game called Ticket to Ride at the moment, which is a train game where you have to build stations across 19th century Europe. So it's got all of the 19th century old uh, European uh, capital names uh, and it actually teaches you quite a lot about about families and working together and whether you're as a family you are your competitive players in that you block people or whether you you actually allow people to win we can't play it we can't play it um we we can't just play it freely in our house. You have to be nice to people. So you can't block people and build on their on parts of the country that they want to go on. Yet, I don't think. No, not without people crying and getting into temper tantrums. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Um, so, guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. And, and do please, um, for me, look into the history of the danger of playing too much board games because I reckon there's a there's a good history there. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, do please find me at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's fantastic. 
And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and friend us there. You can check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, and we are, still have a few signed books left. If people um, want to start buying early for Christmas, we've got uh, the Tudors, the Vikings, World War II, and uh, the Romans, uh, and also our big book, Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, if you'd like to support what we're doing, uh, to change the way in which people think about the past, then head over to patreon.com, uh, where you can become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected. But meanwhile, happy gaming, everyone. Uh, be well <laughs> and check in with you soon. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.